0: Neha, what's the tea? You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male centric works from your high school lit class, we'll also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis, but don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the
1: test of time? Keep listening to find out. I'm excited to start this one. I have no small talk. I just want to talk about the books.
0: Yeah, honestly, me too. I think that They're both such powerful books, so let's
1: just get right into it then. Yeah, so both of us had read one. I read Passing many years ago. You've read Vanishing Half before, so Mm -hmm. this time The Vanishing Half was more fresh for me. So I can give a little summary of that, and then do you want to follow up with The Passing, and then we can kind of talk about both of them? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so The Vanishing Half is a book by Britt Bennett. She... Writes a story that kind of traverses a couple generations. Um, The the central story is there's two twin sisters who are both fair-skinned black girls. And when they're young adults, one of the sisters decides to pass over as white. And uh, at first she just does it to see what it would be like. And then she actually chooses to live the rest of her life that way. And the book revolves around the two sisters and their families and how it affects the relationships between them. Yeah, I don't want to say any more without spoiling it, but <laughs> why don't you give her like a primer on The Passing?
0: Yeah, so The Passing was a, a lot shorter of a book than The Vanishing Half was. The length of the book didn't affect the power that the book had. I think the main character is Irene. She is similarly a light-skinned Black woman, and she lives in Harlem. The story begins when she runs into her childhood friend, Claire, who she realizes is passing as white and has married a wealthy white man. And the story just kind of goes into the both of them, and they find the, each other's lives very intriguing and interesting. And that kind of builds into the story that we, that we will get into now. The vanishing half is... Two twin sisters, Stella and Desiree. Stella's husband's name is. Do we know his name? John. Is it John? Because that's that's Clarice. Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> see. We're already getting confused. I don't know. I don't know if Claire Stella's husband even matters to the story, honestly. But basically, Stella and Desiree are twins. Desiree's love story is with. Uh, the inspector, whose name is Early. And the other people that we need to know about in that family is Adele, which is their mom. And then Desiree's daughter, who is Jude. And then Stella's daughter, who is Kennedy. And then Jude's boyfriend, partner, is Reese. I think that's all the people that we need to really know about for The Vanishing Half.
1: Yeah, so for passing, the two central characters are claire who is a woman who is passing for white and irene who's the narrator of the story and she is living her life as a black woman she's married to a black man so her husband is brian um and irene and brian have two boys and then claire's husband is john bellows bellows
0: and, and he will w, yeah Okay. Uh,
1: okay. He also, I think she calls him Jack sometimes. The other side characters is there's a girl named Gertrude who is passing, but she's just a mutual acquaintance of Irene and Claire. And then there is also, I don't know if this even matters. We don't even talk about her. Felice, Felicity?
0: Claire also has a daughter and named Marjorie.
1: Oh, yeah. So I think yeah. that's kind of the characters and... We will try to keep everybody straight. We mostly refer to everybody by their names. So if you've read both, hopefully it's easy to follow. Yeah, and we should say all of our episodes, we do include spoilers. But for this discussion particularly, if you have not read these books, you should go read them. Because we will be including spoilers and some of them are pretty shocking. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So I loved The Vanishing Half. I he did. I loved, yeah, I loved passing when I first read it. And honestly, the first time that I saw I had seen this book on like New York Times bestsellers lists and stuff like that. And I had never really had the urge to read it. And I feel like I was just biased about New York Times bestsellers I feel like a lot of them tend to be kind of pulp fiction, like and overhyped
0: for sure. Yeah, like the silent but...
1: patient where like, okay, I can read it in an afternoon, but it's not quality literature. So that was why I didn't read it for a while. But I'm so glad that I did for this because it's I was like riveted. (laughs) I think.
0: Yeah, I think the first time I read The Vanishing Half, I didn't quite know what I was getting into. I have a like a personal habit that I keep to where with movies and books. I don't watch trailers or read the back of the books. I usually just like word of mouth. Someone tells me what it's about. And I'm like, okay. And I get into it. So obviously the vanishing half was really popular. I, th- I think it was in 2020 that it was the New York bestsellers. And that's when I read it. Cause I was just seeing it everywhere. And I got into it and initially thought it was like, kind of like a mystery book. Oh, we have to like find out where Stella is and what she's doing. And that ob- obviously was very captivating to me. Gets very deep into the daughter's lives and how their actions have affected their their family and how they live and their personalities and just everything about them. And I think it's a very deep dive into um, racism and bigotry and just a lot of themes in this one. But speaking of themes, which one did you pick?
1: I picked comfort. Interesting. Mostly because... <laughs> I was like curled up in a blanket and I had a candle. I was like very comfortable when I was reading this book for the most part. So it's like, I'm going to go with comfort. Um, but I kind of saw it from these because these books are talking a lot about identity and um, they spend a lot of their lives not in a comfortable place. And so there were like certain moments here and there that I saw comfort crop up. Um, What did you pick for your theme?
0: I picked power. I was debating between like privilege and power. Sometimes they can go hand in hand, but like, I did want to focus on what power meant in both of the roles of Irene and Claire and Stella and Desiree and how I I read The Passing first and that was that book was new to me. And I'm, I saw it in the very beginning of The Passing when um, Claire and Irene were meeting and it kind of felt like Claire had a power over Irene in their initial meets because you could tell that Irene wasn't into inviting Claire places or hanging out with her or involving her in her her or her family's life at all but for some reason Claire had this power over her and like convinced her to do these things for her and I think that's that was my first moment of seeing power and so I kind of kept with that theme and Obviously, with the vanishing half, it's, it's similar that the first time I saw it was when Stella decides that she wants to um, apply for the job, like the job at the um, what was it like perfume company? Oh, I thought it was a law firm
1: law firm. Oh, are you talking about the one where she meets her husband? Yeah.
0: No, no, that was um
1: Oh, the department store.
0: Yes, the department store. Uh-huh. And I for me I was like, okay, money is power and she's like, "Oh, I'm going to I want to start passing as white because it gives me more money and that's kind of where I saw that for the first time." That's so interesting
1: that you saw it that way. I it's a really I like that reading, but I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned it. I felt like I was really Focused on how they were dealing with their own insecurities and issues with identity, and like an internal representation of the external struggles that they either had personally dealt with or kind of knew that they would have to deal with. I guess why don't we talk about the passing? I can only think to go in chronological order because I don't, I ha- I haven't done a good job of organizing organizing my notes this time, so. Um, at the beginning of the book, there was one thing that I kind of highlighted and I wanted to ask, she starts the book, Irene is the narrator, and she starts the book with the story of Claire. There's a story that she tells of when they were little girls of Claire's Mm -hmm. reaction to her father dying. And I thought it was interesting because the rest of the book, there's very little that they talk about their childhoods together. It's all very in the present moment. And I wanted to ask what you thought of her including that and how that sets the tone for the rest of the book.
0: In it, for me reading that part of the book, I wasn't yet sure what the book was about exactly. So I feel like that kind of gave me a little bit of like a sneak peek into their past relationship. And at some point, Irene forgot about their past relationship because she she forgot who or tried to forget who Claire was. And Claire only becomes part of her life again when they meet all of a sudden in Chicago. And so at that point, I don't, Irene isn't ever thinking about their past anymore. I think when she sees Claire's name for the first time, she's like, oh, yeah, Claire's that girl that blah, 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 whatever. But then as soon as she realizes that this girl's like passing as white, that's all that she really cares about at that point. So it's just like very present.
1: Yeah. And the book is divided into three segments and each segment seems like, feels like a different tone, at least in the relationship that the two women have with each other. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, Irene and Claire, Claire is kind of, I guess, trying to make contact and Irene is not having it. And then the middle one is a lot more tumultuous. Yeah. And Claire is now in yeah. Claire's now in that society and Irene's a lot more angry about it. I think in the first part of the book she's just a little more confused. And then in the last one, it I mean, everything kind of comes to a head at the end. But
0: I love that you brought up the parts because Nella Larson does a really good job of a build up in this book. Mm-hmm. She's always hinting at the fact that Irene has a temper because she like bring they she like slowly and in, in just passing no pun intended, we will say, <laughs> <laughs> we will say like, oh, Brian, Irene's husband, had a fight months ago about something and how mm-hmm. Brian's kind of afraid of her. And so obviously, Irene does have this, this temper about her, but she never actually like loses her cool in, in the book that we're reading in that segment. But she always hints at it. And so I feel like when she does eventually, like, break the glass at the party at the, near the end of the book, that was, like, her finally losing her temper and, like, being angry. But she does such a good job of, like, hinting to that buildup throughout the segments in the book. And I, I really love that yeah. because it wasn't surprising when she lost her temper. It was like we knew it was coming. We wanted right. it to happen in some way or the other.
1: And she's so sneaky about it, too, because you feel like you're just reading a conversation about like tea, yeah. <laughs> afternoon tea, you know, and then all of a sudden something crazy has happened. And you, you have to kind of stop yourself and be like, wait, what? And then read through Irene's reaction again to piece together what's happening because she never spells it out. But it's still very clear what's going on, yeah. like um, in the middle when so in the second part of the book. Uh, Irene starts thinking that Brian and Claire are having an affair Mm -hmm. and she has no evidence at all, but she just kind of was like putting together all these different emotions really. At at least the way I saw it is she's displacing her. She's either jealous or angry at, at Claire for passing or probably both. And she kind of displaces those emotions onto this imagined affair With Claire and Brian, which the author never comes out and clarifies if it's Mm. real or not. Like, we have no evidence. We just have to guess or believe Irene or not believe Irene.
0: What do you think? Do you think Brian had the affair?
1: I don't know. Because Irene is, I don't know if you could call her an unreliable narrator in the traditional way. It's not like there's a big thing revealed at the end that was like, oh, I was lying the whole time. But I don't know that the author wants us to side with Irene.
0: Like, yeah, is Irene the protagonist? Cause, no, I don't. That, that's a great question. I don't know. And I think Irene is so emotional throughout the book that it's like people are blinded by their emotions all the time. And I think that's kind of mm-hmm. what happens. I mean, the ending of the book was, I think, a very. Well, i will just gonna say it. Well, Claire dies basically and like the big question is like how did she die we don't know if she jumped we don't know if irene pushed her and i think that's like a moment where if you do believe that irene pushed her that's a blind moment for her where she was so blind with rage rage that she wasn't understanding what was happening so in that sense she could have been so blinded by her emotions that she just convinced herself that brian was having an affair And obviously as her as the narrator, we, we believe her or like want to side with her in some way. But I, I also don't know. I, my heart tells me no though, is I feel like, yeah, I feel like Brian obviously had some kind of attraction towards her, but I don't think based off like his personality or the way that it was portrayed in the book that he would have been the type of person to like actually have an affair.
1: Yeah. I I don't know, maybe he could have had an affair, but I agree. My gut tells me that nothing was, or not nothing. Maybe they were like flirting, or he found her attractive, but I don't think they were having an affair either. Yeah. What do you think happened at the end? Because there's a lot of different ways it could have gone. Like, do yeah. You think Irene pushed her. Do you think she fainted? Do you think she jumped?
0: I I read it as, she jumped. I think really in that moment Claire saw the confrontation that she was fearing her entire life and just decided, you know what, like, this is it. What about you? What did you think?
1: Well, so I read this book a while ago and all I remembered about it was that it was about a woman who was passing and that the woman killed herself at the end. I just remember I like knew see. going into it. I was like, oh, she's going to die. But a couple of things. First, in the scene up to it, because I didn't have any clear memories of it, I didn't know if it was going to be Irene or Claire. Like, the whole book, I thought I had remembered that it was going to be Claire that died. But then in the scene just before Bellow, like, Claire's husband walks in, I was like, wait, is it Irene who kills herself? Because I actually think that in those moments when she opens the window, I think she's contemplating that. Or like I don't know if it's conscious or subconscious, but... There's just something about the passage that made me think, like, is she thinking about jumping? Yeah. And then when he came in and everything happened, the first time I had read it, the same thing as you. Like, I thought that Claire jumped. But this time reading it, I almost felt like Irene pushed her, but not intentionally. Like, she didn't push her with the intent of, like, I need to end her. And she had, even though she had thought about it all the time she wasn't consciously thinking she wanted to kill her but I just think with her temper and with everything that had happened before like she even says it a couple of times what if Claire has died or what if she outs Claire and I just think all of these ruminations were brewing so close underneath the surface that she might have just reacted blindly
0: yeah and like un, like unconsciously like yeah just acted just made out. a sharp movement and then Claire falls in a way, I'm like really glad that we're doing The Passing and The Vanishing Half in one episode because they're just so similar and very great novels to read. But it's like, I could spend this whole episode talking about Passing. So I know. <laughs> so I, I don't want to get into it too much. But yeah, I feel like it, it was good that that the author, Nella Larson, she kind of left it up to the audience to decide what had happened. In the same way, I feel like Britt Bennett also kind of does that in The Vanishing Half. When uh, Loretta moves into Stella's neighborhood Mm -hmm. and um, she and Stella start to kind of become really good friends. But then I think Stella gets a little bit afraid of how close she is uh, to a black woman and she starts to push her away. And I think another question that that the author kind of left for the audience to decide was, do you think Loretta knew that Stella was a black woman?
1: I think she knew. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing happens in the passing where Bello or somebody is mentioning how Claire would never have black servants and he thinks it's because she hates black people, but it's implied that she doesn't want to be around black people because they would be able to tell like so many of these like small little nudges and hints are in both of the books. Um, But I think Loretta knew. I don't know. The other question I was going to ask you about that also was why you think Stella starts up a friendship with Loretta.
0: I think it's the same reason why Claire finds her way back into the black community. I think it's just your theme comfort. It's just them wanting to be, I mean, I, I, in the same way, me being Indian, I do have some sort of comfort when I am friends with someone who is also Indian. There's just certain things that they understand that may, may, maybe a non-Indian person may not understand. So that's that's the way I relate that. But um, but it also felt like they thought it was exotic. <laughs> right. Like is like, oh, like this is how the other side lives. Yeah. It's like it was like intriguing to them, maybe.
1: One of the things I noticed about both the books is, I mean, reading these books in parallel, there's parallel stories going on, right? There's uh, there's Stella and Claire who are passing, and then there's Desiree and Irene who are not passing, and both the women who choose not to pass and marry a black man have fairly violent marriages, and I thought that was interesting. I like thought about that, and just on this whole theme of safety and comfort it felt to me like their domestic lives were symbolic for the life that they were choosing the marriage being violent and like abusive in some of the situations was kind of representative of the life they would lead being outwardly seen as black like black people live through a lot of suffering and violence every day and if you're passing as white and nobody thinks you're black you're Say, "Quote unquote safe from a lot of that." What do you think about that? That was kind it, of one thing that stood out to me, and I was yeah, it like, seems to translate from their domestic lives to their outward lives.
0: It's it's sad because I I did notice that too, yeah. but I think the vanishing half did a good job of kind of showing us the other side of that with Desiree and Early's relationship because they're a a black couple as well and somewhat healthier than their than Desiree's previous marriage it's also it's interesting because yes in their relationship with their husbands things were bad but they still had a sense of comfort with who they were as an individual whereas I feel like with Stella and Claire they were just constantly in conflict with themselves and but weren't but were comfortable in their marriage. Right. Of. So their fear
1: was a lot more interior. Yeah. And unspoken. It was always like on the edge versus like Desiree and Irene. It was a, more external. Yeah. It was like a physical yeah.
0: abuse. Mm-hmm. But I mean, both of those things suck. So it's not like one thing is worse than the other. Yeah. It's just but, really <laughs> all about the choices that they made. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess in the end, Claire was outed. And she did receive some kind of verbal abuse before she died um, from her husband. Mm -hmm. So there there was that, I guess. But going off of that, do you think there was any importance to the fact that both of these stories were about women who were passing? I haven't done a lot of research on it, but I don't know a lot of example literary examples of men passing.
1: The introduction to the version of passing that I read, talked a little bit about it. Um, And I also read the Wikipedia page. (laughs) Um, And it was saying how, it's actually interesting, it was talking about how passing as a phenomenon was a lot more common than we would think now. And the way that it is portrayed in literature is a lot more dramatic, for lack of a better word, than it was in real life. And it kind of talks about Examples of both men and women who would pass in and out of society, and people would know they were passing and not really care. Some people passed as white and then used that platform, I guess, to try and help their communities. It seems like maybe, and of course, this is all like written records and gets warped by time and who's telling the history, but it seems that maybe the more common story with someone like Gertrude. Gertrude is that random friend in passing who has married a white man, but he knows that she's actually black. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting for her to include, because there's no such middle ground in the vanishing half. There's only completely passing and completely not. I don't know. Gertrude doesn't really have much of a role other than to be like a spectator to that interaction with Bello. But it seems like that was a little bit more common. And in the literary tradition, it's become almost a device to be able to talk about race and identity and um, discrimination and the other themes that we were kind of discussing.
0: I would be interested in reading if anybody has any recommendations of a similar story, but in a men's point of view. I feel like it would be a very different story, but I I would be just as interested to read it speaking on all the themes that you just mentioned i noticed that class and race are very intertwined in both of these stories desiree and irene have similar abuse in their relationships there's also a want for a better life or more money or or just the assumption that they're both in a lower class than their subparts are yeah i think in both
1: situations it was presented that passing as white and marrying a white man was definitely a means to an end. It wasn't just for the sake of being recognized as white. I think the wealth and the status and all of that had a big part. Um, but I felt like in the passing, Claire and Irene were of a much more similar social class than Desiree and Stella ended up. Yeah, um, Which I wonder how much that has to do with the time difference. Cause The passing is set in the late 20s, probably like right before the Great Depression. And then the vanishing half, I think, starts around the 50s and spans to the 80s or 90s. That may have something to do with it, because back in the 20s, I think New York City was very different than how it was in the 50s, 80s now. And there is a lot more mobility. There is probably less obvious of class and wealth discrepancy yeah and like, like yeah, the, was a
0: lot smaller back then
1: yeah and like that big dance that they go to in the middle of passing it seems to have people I don't know how much it spanned classes but it seemed to span a lot of different social circles like there are black people white people probably other mixed races there um, and it seemed to be big enough that it would encompass a couple of different classes so that kind of mixing seemed a little bit more kosher, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, compared to in The Vanishing Half, where it's definitely a plot point that gets focused on that all these people are indifferent. And even Risa and Jude, Jude is Desiree's daughter. They talk about the backgrounds that they came from, and they're not wealthy. They both are from these small communities in the South. And that is very much contrasted with Kennedy's lifestyle, where her mother is kind of like, It's like a first world problem, right? That she's quitting college to become an actress. That's very much a kind of privileged lens to see that in or or to make that choice even.
0: Mm -hmm. I feel like we've done a really good job of pointing out the similarities between the two books. But what about the differences? In The Vanishing Half, I thought that a lot
1: of the relationships and the differences in race and those kinds of categories were a little bit more defined or spelled out yeah and the premise or how it starts is this town of light-skinned people and all of them are black but Mm light-skinned and it it felt like it represented something to me I was like is this like a ideal place like in books sometimes you get this um utopian kind of garden of eden type thing where everything is great um, obviously, it's not great because they talk about a couple horrible things that happened there, but they keep coming back to it that everyone in this town is like that. And when Jude comes in, they're like, who is the dark skinned child? And it was very central to the story.
0: Yeah, that was one of one of the biggest differences between the two books that I noticed is because I think the the location in the passing is Chicago and Harlem. And that doesn't really have too much importance to this, to the actual storyline. But in The Vanishing Half, Mallard, Louisiana, which I'm pretty sure is a made up place, right? I don't think it actually exists. I don't think so. That location is a really big part of the whole book because that's where Desiree goes back to. They they, yes, they talk about this weird utopian, like you said, of like the city only having light skinned black people. and how people in the city are warning against marrying into darker skinned people. And it's, it's sad because it's almost like, even though it was the perfect world, quote unquote, because it was this thing that was, that was created by black people. But um, Stella and Desiree wanted to leave. They, they weren't comfortable there. They saw how much like the world was, Offering them outside of Mallard and they wanted to leave. And Stella, after
1: she leaves, I think later we learn part of why she was so motivated to stay away from that place and run away and make a new life. But she kind of tells herself this repetitive lie also that she... Feels like the men in her social circle and her neighborhood, the white men, she's like, oh, but those white men would never do something like that when she thinks about what happened to her father mm-hmm. or um, she tells herself that this life and her marrying her white husband has allowed her to escape the life where she was not in a great situation, kind of mm-hmm. destitute almost and um, was molested in her workplace. and. She just keeps telling herself that she's indebted to it and this is life. But she's kind of lying to herself. Like she knows she's lying to herself when she says those things about those white men, because she knows that there's no reason for it. Like any white man could have done what those men did to her father. Till the end, I think she like still tries to maintain that lie. And we kind of lose track of what her story is gonna be when we find out that her daughter Kennedy knows the truth. Because now that Kennedy knows the truth. It's kind of like, is her husband going to know? Is she going to tell everyone? Is she going to reach back out to Desiree? And all of that is left up in the air. I
0: it, I read that situation as Stella does, no longer wants to lie to her daughter about who they are and their background. But Stella does not want to change her way of life. I think she's accepted herself as a white woman and doesn't necessarily want to do anything to change her anything about her life whereas her counterpart in passing who's Claire kind of does the opposite where she re- kind of has a lot more regret than Stella has and she wants to go back she's she's always like or she one of the things that she says is um that she kind of wants to be found out because then she could safely come back to her community mm-hmm. um but Stella's the exact opposite her yeah she was found out but she still wants to doesn't want to tell anybody who she really is
1: yeah i i noticed the same thing that they had different reactions to it and stella i mean stella's hand was forced because jude revealed the whole thing she probably never would have said anything otherwise but it was just stella's character i think was very interesting in the book because the whole book her absence is more important than her presence would have been. If she'd been around, it wouldn't have been talked about so much or it wouldn't have been so emotionally, obviously distressing for the family. I just don't, I don't know. What does it take for someone to just walk out on your family or community? And then, and obviously I say this from like a totally different situation. Like I have no idea. Like me people did this and I'm not anyone to judge that, but, it's just so interesting, especially when we have this counterpart in Claire. Who yeah, we clearly see has regrets and she's trying to come back into the community and maintain those relationships.
0: Yeah, it, it's hard to, to speak on it and like form like a solidified opinion on whether things are right or wrong when obviously this is something that that we can't relate to. And so it it, it does feel not right for me to make a judgment on Stella or Claire on their decisions in life. Yeah, but I will say that like the constant lie that you need—that part is where I find it hard to like lie to your children or lie lie to your own husband and lie about your family. Like those things, I feel like it's probably a very difficult decision to make to to do those things, which is why I think Gertrude, like you mentioned before, her situation makes way more sense to me where it's like okay maybe she is passing as white but she's her husband knows and her family Mm -hmm. knows and the people aren't in her life that she probably values the most know with with that storyline it seems a lot more believable having her in
1: the story I think enhances the characters of Irene and Claire because without her it's kind of like the vanishing half where you only have these two extremes and you're not really presented with the third option. And so it doesn't seem like something that's even feasible, but then having her in the story and it's really fine. Like there doesn't seem to be any problems with it. I think gives the reader more of an idea of how extreme Irene and Claire are mm-hmm. um, and draws that comparison a lot better. Um, the other thing I thought was that the pace, I mean, obviously the pacing of the book is very different and passing is a lot more like a snapshot in time, even though it does have some flashbacks, it all seems to take place over the span of maybe a year. So that's a lot shorter and a little bit more tightly connected. And The Vanishing Half is a lot more like a journey um, because a lot of the book is also everyone figuring out, like, what, or try asking what happened to Stella, where is she, who is she. Um, and I think that created more of a mystery around it. Mm-hmm. And I think the vanishing half focused a lot more, or not a lot, but I guess the effect of that is it focused a little more on people's intentions and kind of how they got to where they are and where that's going to take them. Whereas passing deals with like a moment in time and really uses emotions to explore
0: Yeah, The Vanishing Half does a good job with talking about consequences, and those consequences they talk about in the form of Desiree and Stella's children, because Claire and Irene also have children, but obviously it's such a short and powerful novel, they don't really get into the kids that much, but Mm -hmm. there probably is a whole other story with with how the kids would have grown up so i kind of like i would love to read right
1: passing fan fiction
0: right like what happens after what is the perspective of the children which is kind of what they did in the vanishing half you they could have like if they had ended at the part where before we know we were introduced to jude and kennedy that probably would have been the same length as the passing and so that's true so it's interesting that we get kind of like a a 10 years later, like a, mm-hmm. like a little time jump of that storyline and then the consequences of both Stella and Desiree's decisions that they made and how that affects their children.
1: One of the things I wanted to mention was I really liked Jude and Reese's relationship. I felt like it talked about a non straight relationship in a really matter of fact way that I liked. I feel like, well, well, not a lot, but sometimes I see authors trying to, like, make a point of including LGBT or making it kinky or, or something. And I just liked how normal and lovingly they the author portrayed it. Um, it was just nice to see.
0: In a weird way, Jude and Reese have been through similar, not similar situations, but similar emotions as a reaction to the situations that they've been in, which kind of brought them together. Just like the Probably being bullied and probably not really fitting in because Jude grew up as a dark person in Mallard, which was filled with light people and that Reese was kind of explained to his parents about him wanting to live as a man. Yeah. And their relationship
1: made a lot of sense to me for that reason, because easy or not easy but people can get very close when you have a, a shared background or there's like one kind of emotion or growing experience that you have in common.
0: Yeah, I feel like when you've been through something traumatic like it's hard to explain that to someone who has never experienced something like that ever before and though their situations were very different just the idea that they had similar emotions I think was kind of made it nice that they could relate to each other in that way.
1: Yeah. This is unrelated, but in the passing, Irene keeps talking about March coming quickly. Like she talks about months of the year a couple of times, like October, December, March. And she keeps looking forward to March because I think that's when Claire's leaving. They're going to Chicago or they're sailing somewhere. But also I noticed that she references like holidays. She talks about Christmas and she talks about Easter. And, you know, Easter symbolizes rebirth and things like that. And it felt like it was hinting at her wanting a rebirth. Like, whose rebirth was huh. she hoping for? And I couldn't figure
0: out if it was hers or Claire's. Interesting. I think maybe I was kind of relating Irene being reborn to when Claire was finally going to leave her. There was just something about Claire that just kind of felt like like a little mosquito in her life that she just wanted to get rid of but couldn't mm-hmm. get rid of.
1: <laughs> hmm. And then it became so complicated because she's like, if I get rid of Claire, then uh, or not if she gets rid of Claire, but if she outs Claire, then Brian and Claire can be together and there's nothing that holding them back. And she's just like creating all these scenarios in her head.
0: Yeah, I definitely related to Irene a lot in that sense. She seems like a crazy person, like, yeah. emotionally. <laughs> I like think sometimes with my overthinking and anxiety, if I was a character to be written, I would be written very soon. I don't know if I would commit murder, but... <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Um, yeah, I
1: think she does, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but she does a good job narrating her thoughts and weaving that in and out of telling the story. Um, there's one line... <laughs> This is also not related to anything, but I just thought it was really funny uh, where they're at the ball and Irene is talking to Hugh, some like philanthropist or I don't know. And she goes, well, this is how I imagine they talked in the 20s based on like watching old black and white movies. She goes, but Hugh, you've got to admit that the average colored man is a better dancer than the average white man. And I was like,
0: wow, so little changes. <laughs> yeah it's just like the the old like version of white man that. can't jump yeah <laughs> exactly I was like that's creepy. yeah that is funny I know we talked about how powerful Nella Larson's writing style is but what about Britt Bennett in The Vanishing Half
1: I liked her writing style a lot and it was less obvious um I think reading passing it felt like I was reading The language felt like I was reading Edith Wharton or like these people who are like masters of language and carrying a sentence and phrases in the vanishing half. She's a little more subtle about it. Um, There's no like big language or descriptive imagery that stood out to me the way it did in passing. But I think she still wrote in a very. I don't know how to describe her writing style. I liked it a lot. But what I
0: wrote down as my notes for Britt Bennett's writing style was captivating, but thorough. Cause I think Mm. she did a good job of making the book. Like I couldn't put it down when I read it. I, as soon as I like understood what the storyline was, I just wanted to know what happened. But with Nella Larson it was just as captivating, I think, but hers hers was more powerful, I think, and mm-hmm. just had more, like, every sentence had meaning. I think Vanishing Half, obviously, being a, a longer novel, was slower, and so... Yeah, it was I more like, like a
1: slow burn, where yeah. the passing is
0: like, the campfire exploded. Exactly, and I <laughs> that's a perfect way of putting it,
1: honestly. Yeah, I had the same experience reading The Vanishing Half, I... I obviously love reading, but sometimes my work day is so long and I'm so exhausted. I've talked to so many people that to read, I'm, I have to like think about it. I'm like, oh, should I read or should I just watch some TV so that my brain can have some rest? And when I was reading The Vanishing Half, it was the first book in a really long time where on my drive home, I was like, I'm going to go home. I'm going to read my book. And it wasn't even a debate of like, should I read or should I watch TV? I was like, I want to read this book.
0: Yeah, because it was it it was just so it's an easy read. It there's not a lot of thinking like you said, which makes it just it's the perfect book to read when you're like on vacation on, a, yeah. on an airplane. But I think pool. it's
1: more than just that. It's an easy read. It's it's easy but complex. Also, yeah, compelling and complex. And I think that actually takes a lot of skill for your writing to be not noticed in the sense that you're not paying attention to grammar and sentence structure, which I kind of get tripped up on a lot if I don't think that the author is a very good writer. But so she has that down. She's like very good writing skills, but also she knows how to pace a story and tell it in a way that makes you want to keep reading without gimmicky tricks. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I did have a passage for The Vanishing Half Um, which I think would do a good job of kind of painting the picture of how you described her writing. It was a strange town, Mallard, named after the ring-necked ducks living in the rice fields and marshes, a town that, like any other, was more idea than place. The idea arrived to Alphonse de Cure in 1848 as he stood in the sugarcane fields he'd inherited from the father who'd once owned him. The father now dead, the now freed son, wished to build something on those acres of land that would last for centuries to come. A town for men like him, who would never be accepted as white but refused to be treated like negroes. A third place. His mother, rest her soul, had hated his lightness. When he was a boy, she'd shove him under the sun, begging him to darken. Maybe that's what made him first dream of the town. Lightness, like anything inherited at great cost, was a lonely gift. He'd marry a mulatto even lighter than himself. She was pregnant then, with their first child, and he imagined his children's children's children, lighter still, like a cup of coffee steadily diluted with cream, a more perfect Negro, each generation lighter than the one before. The other thing that stood out to me when you read
1: that passage just now is how much her writing alludes to time. Like, everything she's writing about makes you Wonder what came before, how it came to be that way, what it would be in the future, but she never directly addresses it. It's just suggested in the way she talks about things.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the only thing that's really written about the history of Mallard in the whole book. And so I think it's it's kind of fun in a way to just kind of like have our own interpretation of what Mallard maybe grew into. Obviously not the utopia that that man was trying to create but um yeah I think I think that paragraph kind of stood out to me because I think it did a good job of kind of it was it's like one of the first pages of the book, so I think it did a good job to kind of like paint the picture of what was going to happen
1: yeah I have one from passing also which I didn't highlight at the time because I was like if I highlight this I'm gonna have to highlight the whole book so I need to (laughs) bring it in but I just loved this passage so much. It's also describing a place, but uh, it's beginning of the book. This is what Irene Redfield remembered. Chicago, August. A brilliant day, hot with the brutal staring sun pouring down rays that were like molten rain. A day on which the very outlines of the building shuddered as if in protest at the heat. Quivering lines sprang up from baked pavements and wriggled along the shining car tracks. The automobiles parked at the curbs were a dancing blaze, and the glass of the shopkeeping windows threw out a blinding radiance. Sharp particles of dust rose from the burning sidewalks, stinging the seared or dripping skins of wilting pedestrians. What small breeze there was seemed like the breath of a flame fanned by slow bellows.
0: I love that you picked that passage and I love that I picked mine because I think they both do a really, really good job of the differences and the similarities between both the writing styles. I think the passage that you read was so powerfully written and just like just picking out like one sentence like her word that, choice. Yeah, like even one sentence in that yeah. passage I would like pick out and like analyze for days. So mm-hmm. I, I think, yeah, I think Nell I'm really excited to get a little bit deeper into Nell Larson's writings since I, this was the first book of hers that I've read.
1: Yeah, I, she wrote another book. I think she's only written two books, this one and another one. The other book is called Quicksand. Is that what you have? I, I
0: got the, the, all of her books. It oh was, my
1: gosh. Wait, what are the other ones?
0: Uh, Passing, Quicksand, and the stories. So Oh, her, like, assorted short stories? Yeah.
1: Oh, is this going to be your foray into short stories?
0: I don't know. (laughs) It was weird because when I was looking for this book in the library, I couldn't find it in like the fiction section. And I looked it up online to see if it was even in the library. It was a really big library. So I was like, it has to be here. It's like 25 copies. and I just couldn't figure out where it was. And then I was like, I know that Shruti was saying that it was a short book. So maybe it's in the short story section. And I was like, I I mentioned before, I hate short stories. so I was like literally repelled into that aisle of the library. I was like, I don't want to be here right now. (laughs) Then I found the book and I was like, I guess I'm reading a short story. And so, yeah, I think I'm going to read the rest of the book.
1: I think Britt Bennett also has one other book. The Mothers. The Mothers. Okay. I'm going to check that out too. Shall we filter the chai? Yes, let's do it. Okay. Which one do you want to talk about first?
0: This entire episode, we've been kind of talking about the passing first. So let's do that one.
1: Okay. What did you think? Rating and then timeliness,
0: timelessness? Timelessness, yes. Timelessness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I'd give this book a 9 out of 10. I really liked it. And I feel like it's type of book that I kind of want to just read again, even though I just finished it, because it's just so much to read into and if even skimming past like one sentence you missed out on something so and it's such an easy read it's only like 128 pages I think so I will definitely be reading it again and I think that's my mark of a great book for me is whether I would read it again or not and I definitely will
1: I think I want to give it a 10 same thing I literally finished it an hour ago and I would start it again from the beginning right now like there's so much to read and what you said about uh whether what makes a book timeless or not if you can say that about it I also heard somewhere that a book should be well it was one of my really favorite podcasts harry potter and sacred text but um one of the hosts talks about how a book or a work of literature or art or whatever it is is sacred or you can Interpret that however you want, like classic, sacred, whatever. If it's generative, so like things like Pride and Prejudice and Harry Potter, like we're still talking about it this day, and like people are writing fan fiction adaptations, and um so that's something that makes something sacred. And I feel like this book, like the fact that we would want to like read or write fan fiction about it, you know, and we're like curious about stories that have been maybe left off the page. I think that definitely makes this a classic in my mind. So I kind of answered the second question, which is if we think (laughs) it stands to test. Yeah. I
0: feel like the fact that we're even, when did this book come out? 1929. Oh, wow. The fact that it was written in 1929, which by the way, was, is almost a hundred years ago. It's 2022 right now as we're recording this. We're only seven years away from it being a hundred years old. I think the fact that we're doing this book, it answers that question. Yes, it, it is going to, it already is standing the test of time. And I think it will. Yeah. What about the vanishing half?
1: I kind of want to give this a 10 out of 10 too.
0: <laughs> like, I,
1: I just don't know what, I have no reason to give it a nine because I don't know what would make it go from a nine to a 10. I, I give it. Oh, you know what? Actually, we didn't discuss this and I wanted to ask about this. Um, the ending felt very abrupt to me. Like, I don't remember exactly what happens, but it ends with Reese and Jude. And they're like, I don't know, they're swimming in a river or a lake or something. And it's after the funeral of Adele, her grandmother, and it just ended. <laughs> <laughs> and and I know there's a lot that remains about the stories of everyone. And that's kind of part of the book, as you're left wondering. But I don't know why it ended with that imagery.
0: Yeah, especially when, like, we're, I mean, it's hard to not compare passing and the vanishing half because that's what our entire episode is. But it, it's its hard because passing ended, like, with the most shocking thing that happened. And the vanishing half was kind of the opposite where it was, like, it just ended like a normal chapter might have. I feel like some of the chapters had more had a better cliffhanger than than the ending did. But yeah, I think because of of the ending and just in general a couple slow parts of the book that I gave it an eight and a half on ten. I liked passing more than the vanishing half. Do you think that this book will stand the test of time?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot of books that I've read that are considered modern classics that are not as good as this book. Like, I just feel like the themes are so not really universal, but something that is never going to go away and that always will be relevant um, that I, I think so.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think The Vanishing Half is just a more recent, kind of a little bit maybe more relatable Version of Passing, I would say, and just like with the drama parts of the children and the relationships and themes that they have, that they're both very similar books, but I and I think they're both equally important.
1: Yeah, I also I wanted to talk about the ending of the of Passing because there apparently were two published endings. Wait, really? What? Yeah. So this is how the ending goes in my copy. Her quaking knees gave way under her. She moaned and sank down, moaned again. Through the great heaviness that submerged and drowned her, she was dimly conscious of strong arms lifting her up. Then everything was dark. Centuries after, she heard the strange man saying, Death by misadventure, I'm inclined to believe. Let's go up and have another look at that window. But apparently a different version of it ended with, then everything was dark it didn't have that last line about the man saying like, oh, death by misadventure, like let's go up and have another look at the window, which leaves it, it, if that's how she ended it, it leaves it even more up to interpretation because then did Irene pass out? Did Irene die? (laughs) Like if everything goes dark. That is,
0: oh my gosh, that makes me like like the book more, honestly. I kind of wish that they (laughs) kept it that way. Wait, so it was just like, she published two different versions or like was it was this way after like it was just interpreted in a different way and so the footnote says
1: that there was two different endings published by the publisher and the first and second printings concluded with that paragraph like centuries after but the third printing omits the passage
0: but later
1: editions all usually use the original one but I don't No, is the was this a publisher decision? Was this an author decision? I don't know. And then now it's making me rethink the last line, too, of, like, the centuries after. She heard a strange one saying death by misadventure. It's like, wow, like, this whole book was one big misadventure.
0: Um, Yeah, why does it, now that I'm reading, like, why does it say centuries after?
1: Yeah, right? Why not moments or, like, it feels like centuries to her, but is it like a breaking the third wall,
0: commenting on
1: the whole thing, like, centuries after. And then the whole book is, like, a death by misadventure. Let's go have another look at the window. And the window is the book, like, the window into their lives. Like, let's go back and read the book and see what we think of it this time.
0: I'm going to have to do a deep dive on this and get some answers because I'm, like – Very, very intrigued right
1: now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, now I'm just, like, thinking through it. I'm like, oh, is she commenting on, like, the novel as a narrative structure? Is she, like, I don't know. There's so many ways to interpret it.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. What about shelf discovery?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, what are your recommendations?
0: So, I will admit, because I got the complete fiction of Nella Larson's novels, that I did start reading Quicksand, and I think I'm just going to put that one as my recommendation for Passing because it's very it seems so far to be similar to, to Passing in a lot of ways, and I just really enjoyed her writing, so I'm just really intrigued to have to read more of it. Um, but for Vanishing Half, I put down A Woman is No Man by Itaf Rum. So A Woman is No Man is a story that spans three generations of Palestinian American women that are confined by tradition and their Arab culture. So I'd say it is similar to Vanishing Half in the generational story part of it, but it's definitely a lot more violent and it has like a story of betrayal, independence, individuality. And I really liked it. I gave it when I read it, I gave it an eight and a half out of ten, which was similar to The Vanishing Half. I will say The Vanishing Half is a little bit is a little bit of an easier read because it's not as sad as The Woman is No Man, but yeah, I would recommend that one. I don't have
1: anything for The Vanishing Half. <laughs> I think because I read The Vanishing Half. Like I knew we were doing this comparison and I read them as companions to each other. So for anyone who hasn't read one or the other, should read the other. Definitely. Um, and then I have two recommendations for passing. One of them is a streetcar named Desire. It's a play by Tennessee Williams. And it doesn't have the same themes necessarily. Um it's about uh, the main characters are white. There's three main characters, but I think I was reminded of this because of the name Stella. Like the name Stella in Vanishing Half, and then the sister Blanche's sister is named Stella, and streetcar named Desire. And if anyone's familiar with the movie, that's like the famous scene of Marlon Marlon Brando yelling like
0: Stella. Oh my gosh, it's um, so funny because <laughs> whenever I, I know what the reference is, yeah. But whenever I hear people referencing that. Scene, I always think of Modern Family because the dog's name is oh. Stella, and there's this one scene where they looking yeah. for Stella. And rough it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember that episode. Um,
1: but anyway, so the play, I think if you read Passing, you might like this play because the pacing is similar. Um, Passing is a novella, so it's pretty quick, and then Street her Name Desires a Play. Um, So that also has to move pretty quickly and action has to kind of be told through dialogue. And a lot of the tension buildup is similar to how it is in passing. And then there's a couple of shocking twists. And um, unfortunately, there is some domestic manipulation and possibly abuse, which is also similar. But I think it's just a really good character study. Um, with some of the similar themes and structures passing
0: um yeah well next episode we're going to be doing the last white man by Mohsen Hamid and Trithi I know you've read some of his work before but mm-hmm. I have not um this book just came out a couple months ago so I'm excited to read it. I keep seeing it everywhere.
1: I'm excited to read this book too. I've seen it a lot and I liked his writing style and some of the themes he brought up. I read uh, The Reluctant Fundamentalist. So this will be
0: fun. Thanks for listening to the novelty. We are your host, Nehan and Trithi, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you, so send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at
1: thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until
0: next time, happy reading.